Hey everyone, and welcome to the New Visionary Podcast, a podcast for artists who are ready to reach greater heights in their art careers. I'm your host, Victoria J. Fry, founder of Visionary Art Collective and New Visionary Magazine. Join me for inspiring conversations with some of the most inspirational visionaries in today's art world. Let's jump in. Hello, artists, and welcome back. Today, we are diving in with Juan Arango Palacios, a visual artist and designer based in Chicago. Juan creates a visual vocabulary exploring the intersection between queer and Latinx culture in the United States. Juan was also, I have to add this in, our cover artist for New Visionary Magazine for the fall issue of 2023. So that was an honor. Juan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Oh, I'm so happy you're here too. And, you know, I have been just admiring your work for so many years now. And, uh, you know, we had the pleasure of connecting during the pandemic, we did an Instagram live. I got to learn a little bit more about your journey through that conversation. But here we are nearly four years later and your work has evolved and your art career has really taken off. I mean, even when we spoke, it was taking off. So now you're like in such a, you know, even further along in your journey in such a different place. So I want to start just by asking you, like, can you share with us a little bit about your journey as an artist and um, kind of what has impacted and influenced your work? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess my journey as an artist has to start from the beginning. And I always like to tell the story of when I was in third grade in Colombia in Catholic school. Um, my third grade class had a drawing competition and the prompt was to draw the jungle. And I was just sitting down, having fun, drawing um, lions and giraffes and elephants and trees and flowers. And after I turned my drawing in, it turns out that I won the competition. And my teacher kind of knelt down next to my desk and was like, hey, Juan, like, you know, this was Catholic school. So she said, God has given you a gift. Um, you are a gifted child. Like, you have to use your gift. And so ever since I've been wanting to be an artist, that was really kind of like the spark that uh, made me realize that I really enjoy, you know, making visual visual art. I My family migrated to the United States when I was 10 years old. I lived mostly throughout Louisiana and Texas, the American South. Um, and then I came to Chicago to pursue a career at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, where I studied mostly painting, but also sculpture and textile making. And that's kind of where my journey really began. I kind of committed to being an artist by going to art school. Um, and I I have been sort of pursuing that ever since. After school, I graduated right in the spring of 2020, so right during the pandemic. Um, it was a wild time, but it was also kind of a time that allowed me to pause, sit down, draw, experiment, post my work. And that's kind of how I slowly got started um, showing in galleries and eventually being able to make bigger and bigger work again. Amazing, amazing. And can you tell us a little bit about your experience at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago? And actually, maybe even before that, like, how was it for you, 
you know, you moved here from Colombia and you moved to the American South. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience first? Because from what I know about your work, it, it did have quite an impact on, on, on the work you create today. Yeah. I mean, my migration story definitely has a huge impact on my life because I experienced so many different cultures. I've lived in an urban setting in Latin America. I've lived in an urban setting here. I've also lived in the countryside. I've lived in the suburbs. Um, And so I've experienced so many different cultures. And so what my work tries to do is to sort of weave these cultures together into one sort of narrative. Um, And the things that I use to marry these cultures together is archetypes. I, I use archetypes in my work a lot. And so I use that literary strategy to kind of, you know, sew parts of my life together into one cohesive story. My experience at the School of the Art Institute was also a bit alienating. Um, mainly because a lot of the students at the School of the Art Institute are really snobby rich kids, you know, for lack of a better word. And so I don't come from that kind of background. And a lot of students there really, I feel like, did not take the their education seriously. They did not take themselves seriously as artists. However, throughout my years there, I was able to find a group of people who was like-minded, who took themselves very seriously, who had big aspirations, who took their studies seriously. And I eventually found my tribe. And those are the same people that I'm friends with now. Those are the same people that I'm showing with now. Those are the same people showing at big galleries, having big shows, doing residencies. And so even though it was a bit of an alienating experience, I was able to find my little group of people. Amazing. I mean, that's the most important thing is like finding your tribe, finding your community, especially when you're in a new environment and, you know, you're there for four years. It's like you've got to find a way to navigate through it and feel connected and feel supported. And I'm so I'm glad that you did. And how was how was your experience in terms of, you know, just like, I guess, on the more technical or practical side I remember when we interviewed you for the magazine, we asked you a little bit about this. And I think you had described it somewhat as you're kind of like you learned a lot and you're also kind of unlearning a little bit of what you learned. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So, I mean, the School of the Art Institute of Chicago is a school that really champions conceptualism. Um, They really champion kind of like meaning rather than technique, rather than, you know, formality. Um, And so I kind of had to take the skills that I already had from before and apply those to this sort of new theory that I was learning at the School of the Art Institute. But if you sort of wanted to learn any new skills, you kind of had to either teach yourself or specifically ask your instructor for guidance. Uh, You know, formal skills were not like taught to you specifically. And so, um, yeah, I had to unlearn a lot of uh, what I thought art school was like. I had to um, adjust to this new super hyper-theoretical curriculum, um, which I really appreciate because it did teach me how to think critically. It taught me how to work critically within my practice as well. And I still use the same research strategies that I learned during my first year at SAIC in my practice now. 
Beautiful. Yeah, I can relate to what you're saying too, because you know I went to the School of Visual Arts here in the city, and it I, I was totally it was so different than what I imagined. Like it was very similar in the sense that you kind of had to teach yourself the the more formal skills in terms of technique, and it was definitely more centered on um, conceptual work or just like finding your voice. I think we were kind of left to our own devices a lot. And as I'm someone who really benefits from structure, so that was kind of hard. And I felt a little bit lost at certain points. Like also it was so, I mean, it could, I'm curious to know what your, what it was like in your, with your high school art program, because my high school art program was so structured and it was very rigorous, but it was very, you know, going from like that high level of structure to really not having any, there were were pros and cons. Like it did teach, finding my voice on my own was a really powerful thing. And I don't know, don't know if that would have happened anywhere else. Like I think for sure I needed to learn that at SVA and that's, was a beautiful thing that came out. But also, um, yeah, I felt a little lost for a while. And I don't think it was even until like my junior year or maybe senior year that I really started to get that. So I don't know if if you had like a similar experience with that. I did. Yeah. I absolutely had a similar experience, especially, you know, when I went to high school, I went to high school in suburban Dallas. Um, and so that school had a very amazing arts program and it was heavily structured. Um, you know, I took all of the AP classes and, you know, in the AP classes, you had to make this many works of art and you had to have this many pictures of each one and you had to submit them and you had to write this many words about them. And it was very structured um, with very kind of like hands-on guidance from my teacher, um, which was very different from SAIC, which I appreciated because I feel like at SAIC, a lot of uh, professors are just kind of like, you're an adult, you have to figure this out. Here's what you have to do, figure it out, you know? Um, and I appreciated that because that is what my life is now. You know, I don't have people telling me what I, what I should create. I have to come up with that on my own. Um, or I guess in conversation with galleries. Um, but I have to come up with my own concepts. I have to come up with my own budgets. I have to come up with my own, uh, plans, strategy, you know? And so, um, I appreciate that, that I had to experience that in school first, because it's something that I know how to deal with now as a practicing artist. Absolutely. And that is the silver lining. It's like, I think at first it kind of is a little jarring and feels like you're thrown into the deep end and how am I going to do this? But you figure it out. And I think a lot of confidence comes from that process. I wanted to ask you because you are a full-time artist. So you know, that's an amazing thing. And we have a lot of listeners who are emerging artists, early career artists, and some mid-career artists as well. Um, But a lot of our listeners and a lot of the artists I work with are working towards becoming, you know, full-time artists. Like that's ultimately their dream. Can you tell us a little bit about the journey? Has it been a linear path? Has it been, um, like, how has it been leading up to this point? And I'd love to just learn all the things. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. It most definitely has not been a linear journey. Um, It has been a very complex journey for me specifically. Um, I am someone who comes from a working class background. So at all times in my life, I kind of have to support myself, um, which is not easy, you know, being an emerging artist. 
So I was lucky enough to, during the pandemic, I found a job uh, that was very flexible with hours. And basically, they would just ask me how many hours I wanted to work this week, uh, every week. So if I had a show coming up, I would work two days a week. If I didn't, I could work more and save up some money. But I've been a I've been a full-time artist for about two years now. Um, and it's it's been going really well. I would say, for example, in 2022, I would say it was a really great year for me. Um, I sold a lot of work. I was really comfortable. Um, I That's when I quit my job. And I was able to kind of go, you know, full time by myself. This past year, 2023, was a little rougher. And I feel like it was a year that kind of humbled me in a way. You know, that is the first time that I've experienced less sales than before. And so it's taught me how to kind of pivot and adjust um, and sort of, yeah, just make adjustments in my life to make sure that I can continue having my practice um, without sacrificing, you know, like my well-being or anything. That's why I say that it hasn't been linear. You know, sometimes I'm doing great. Sometimes things are not selling and I have to maybe pick up a job somewhere. Um, I do odd jobs here and there when I need money. Um, I did an internship at the Art Institute a few years ago and from time to time they'll ask me to do small freelance work here and there so that always helps Um, or also doing commission work as a way that I kind of get some extra income if I need to Um, but yeah very complex it's it's definitely not something that is easy to do if you have a lot of anxiety regarding your finances because you don't know what your finances are going to look like during any time really you don't have a check every two weeks you don't have uh, a salary that you know that you're going to get paid and so sometimes you'll make a bunch of money sometimes you'll make no money and you kind of have to find ways to you know wiggle yourself through that precarity of not knowing what what's coming next Yeah, I so appreciate your transparency around this and just, yeah, your honesty, because, you know, it's reminds me of like, you know, I'm a, I'm an entrepreneur and I think it's really the same thing. You're an entrepreneur really as well. And it's, it's similar in that you, you don't know always what things are going to look like financially. I think it requires so much trust. (laughs) It's like such a big leap of faith, making the decision to go full time and also good for you, you know, if you're like, I I, ha- I can do a little bit of design work or I can, you know, do some commission work. I mean, this is just the reality, I think, of what it's like to, be- to become a full-time artist. And yeah, I think it's going to be really good for our listeners to hear that as well. Because like I said, so many of them are, you know, this is the goal, but it's important to understand the reality of what this means. There's no perfect situation if you're working a nine to five you have the steady paycheck but you are sacrificing time yeah and if you are a full-time artist you obviously don't have the nine to five but there's other things you have to be okay with that can be challenging so it's like whatever you choose you just have to figure out I think what you know works best for you and what you can handle and what you can't handle yeah absolutely I mean for the past year that I've been I've been putting on a lot of exhibitions Um, I have been working about 60 hours a week, you know, um, which is more than a full-time job. And um, a lot of people, you know, or some of my friends or maybe some of my family members, when I am just casually talking to them about how financially, like, 
precarious things are from sometimes they're like oh why don't you just get a job you know but sometimes you know if you have exhibitions coming up if you have things planned out you can't because you're already working more than a full-time job and so you know uh, for me personally it takes a lot of planning I just I, I plan ahead a lot um I try to really manage my finances by saving as much as I can and and again planning on how much I need to spend you know how long am I going to be spending on this for you know etc um and while you know from time to from time to time from time to time like things do get you know maybe not as amazing as they could be um it is a very empowering feeling to still, you know, be able to, or to still be doing what you love, to still keep going, to not give up. I feel like being an entrepreneur, which I'm sure you can relate to, um, is very empowering. You know, I, I would not want to trade this for any other kind of lifestyle because I just feel, I feel like my own boss. I feel like I can do whatever I want. I can go to work whenever I want which takes discipline, you know, that's something that can be learned. But at the end of the day, I feel very empowered by, you know, being a full-time artist. Totally. And thank you for sharing that. It is really, really empowering. And, and it, you know, like anything, it has its challenges, but you know, the quote or the saying, I suppose, and it's, it's something like, and I, so it's about entrepreneurs, but I think it's the same for artists or anyone that works for themselves, which is entrepreneurs are the only people who would rather work 80 hours a week for themselves than 40 hours a week for someone else, <laughs> you know? And it's so true. It's like, yeah, most of us, if we are full-time artists, if we're full-time entrepreneurs or both, um, we typically are working more a lot of the time, not to like generalize, but it does happen that way yeah. because also... You, and you have to set your own boundaries. I think that's the other part of it. Like I've really had to put into place, you know, times that I'm going to be on social, times that I'm not going to be on social, times that I'm going to check my email and not check my email. Because when you work a nine to five, that's kind of built in, like you clock in and you clock out. But when you are running your own company or you are a full-time artist, you're working for yourself. So you have to be the one to put those boundaries in place and uphold them which has been an interesting learning experience. <laughs> I don't know if you feel that as well. Yeah, I do. I do. You definitely have to set those boundaries. And also, you know, at your, you know, at your job, you know, if you have a job and you do something well, they reward you with a promotion or a raise. So I also remind myself to reward myself when I accomplish something, you know, if I open the show, you know, I'll usually treat myself to a nice dinner out at a restaurant or something um, or a little shopping spree. So, you know, setting boundaries, also rewarding yourself. Um, I feel like it's a good way that, that I kind of stay within, you know, my sanity. <laughs> and then something else that yes. is really helpful for me when it comes to being a full-time artist is that, you know, I work within this commercial gallery realm of you know selling work through gallery spaces which is its own kind of like industry um and i I have found that there are times when everyone's selling and then there are times when nobody is selling um and so i often remind myself that it's not always in my hands 
sense. You know, it's not because my work isn't good. It's not because I'm not working hard enough. It's not because I'm a bad artist. Um, it's sometimes, you know, the economy is bad. So people are not buying art as much as they usually do. Uh, so reminding myself of that helps me, you know, maintain that, that like admiration for my own work um, and encourages me to sort of keep moving forward. Absolutely. And I think that's such an important thing to depersonalize it, especially because art is the most, I mean, the work you're creating and you're putting out there and you're selling and you're exhibiting, it is like an extension of your yourself, your soul. It's so close to your heart that when it's not selling, it's not, it's also different than I think you creating like a product, you know, and the product's not doing well because it's something that is just so unique and personal to you. So I think it's really healthy that you kind of have that delineation of like, it's, it's not always, it's not linked to me. This is not something that is, this has, it has no reflection on my work and the quality of my work or it's an important thing. I understand it's something that's really hard to do. You know, it's really hard to take yourself out of it sometimes. You know, I've had collectors tell me, I love this painting, I'm going to buy it. And then they don't, or they pull out of the cell and I feel personally hurt. You know, I feel, I feel personally offended. I'm like, Oh, um, you know, like you told me you were going to buy, you told me you liked it. You told me you loved it. Why are you not pulling it through? But then, you know, after calming down for a little bit, I understand, Oh, people, it's a bad market right now. People are making strategic buys. People are, um, I don't know, making less buys than they usually do. And so I, I do have to remove myself and my emotions from the situation and remind myself that sometimes things are just not in my hands. Totally, totally. And remembering like, you know, something I, I remind myself of that I think could translate in this way is like, you know, I, I work with artists, I mentor artists, I teach programs and things like that. And it's happened to me before as well where, you know, an artist has expressed great interest in working with me. And then at the last minute, they might be like, oh, I, you know, I can't do this right now, or it's too big of a financial investment or, or whatever it is. And then I remind myself like, wait, this has nothing to do with me. Like this isn't because they don't have faith in me as their mentor, or they don't want to work with me. It could just be, and usually it is something that, you know, is happening financially or personally or whatever it is that actually has nothing to do with me or them not wanting to work with me. And so I think when it's like, whether it's your art or something that you are just so involved in and like you put so much of your heart into, it's really hard not to take it personally. But once you depersonalize and you realize that actually like nine times out of 10 has nothing to do with you, then it makes doing this so much easier because <laughs> yeah. it's like, we're in this for the long haul, you know? So we have to have, we have to like learn to be okay with things like that because those things are always going to pop up. It's just the reality of it. So. Absolutely. And I feel like when things, if you feel like things are not going great, if you feel like things are not like maybe your work was selling is, is not selling as much anymore. Like when, when I'm feeling kind of down bad, I take that as an opportunity to try something new, experiment with new materials, uh, make that drawing I've been wanting to make for a long time, or apply to that residency I've been putting off for a long time, or apply to that grant that I've been putting off for a long time. So I take it as a time to slow down, take a step back, try new things, um, and, 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 you know, and then worry about, about the future. 
Absolutely. It's an invitation to move to something else. And I love that you said that because it's something I remind myself of as well, especially if I find myself perseverating over something and just overthinking it and questioning. I'm like, as soon as I find myself getting into that thought pattern, I'm like, this is an invitation to step back and focus on something else. And anytime we do that, it's it's better. Yeah. Um, and also I think reminding yourself, like, I'm wondering if you do this with your art, but I do this a lot with you know, any services that I offer through my company, which is like, and I truly, truly to my core believe this, anyone that I'm meant to work with, we will work together. Like regardless of, you know, if, if whatever the situation is financial or whatever has come up, if we're meant to work together, there will be some way, like sometimes an artist will even apply for a grant to work with me or something like that. Um, And I remind myself, like if, when there's a will, there's a way. So um, I don't know if it's helpful, you know, to, to say like, if, you know, whoever's meant to collect my work will collect it. I don't know if that's like a mantra or something that you lean into, but it's something that's been helpful for me. Yeah, absolutely. And at the end of the day, like, you know, if so, like if a specific work, you know, doesn't get sold, I'll usually sell it later on. Um, but I always tell myself that if it doesn't, like, it's my painting that I love, I would love to have it in my living room you know? Um, Yes. Yes. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, your work is phenomenal and I would actually love to dive a little bit further um, into your work with you, specifically the themes that you explore, your personal connection to those themes, and also just how the work itself has grown. Because when I first discovered your work, I want to say four, around four years ago, um, there's a lot of similarities to what you're creating today, but I've seen it evolve so much. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like when I was, you know, four years ago, I was kind of at a crossroads uh, of not knowing where I wanted to take my practice because I was really excited about several things that I was doing at the same time. Um, I remember back then I was still doing a lot of um, these really abstract expressionist jungle paintings that I no longer make. Um, I feel like those paintings were heavily influenced by that SAIC conceptualist kind of uh, school of thought. Um, but I really started to ask myself what what it is that I wanted to do with my practice, why I was making art, who I was making art for. And so I decided that what I really wanted to do with my work was to tell stories. I wanted to be a storyteller above all. And so I, I felt that the stories that I wanted to tell were very personal. They're about me. They're about my family. They're about my friends. They're about my history. Um, and so I felt that those stories could only be told through the figure. Um, and that is kind of when I was born into the figurative painter that I am today. Um, and ever since I've just been exploring, um, queerness, um, and Latinidad through the figure in all shapes and forms, you know, through textiles, through painting, through sculpture, um, adding, you know, mythology, adding magical realism, um, adding religion, um, and just kind of playing around with every aspect of my being, um, and putting it all 
out on the work. So beautiful. And I think that's been one of the coolest things to observe over the past few years is seeing you do sculpture. I don't know if this is something you were already doing, but I just started noticing the sculptures and more textile work. Do you have a preferred medium? Or I guess another question would be how, like when you started branching out and using different mediums and kind of expanding your tools and your techniques and your processes, how did that influence the work? So I, I'm a big learner. I love learning. You know, if I could be in school my whole life, I would. And so, you know, when I start learning a new material, um, I sort of just get sucked into it and I, I can't stop, you know. And so uh, I start investigating how I can take this material further. Um, so, for example, when I first started working in textiles, I just couldn't stop making textiles. Um, and, you know, when I started making figurative paintings, I, I loved making nothing else but figurative paintings. So every single time I kind of experiment, I start getting really excited about that medium and, and experimenting further and further. Um, I do feel like most of my work is rooted in painting. However, I would not consider painting my favorite medium. I think for me, my favorite thing to do in the world is draw. Um, Cause I feel like drawing for me, it's kind of like the foundation of everything that exists in the world that is man-made. <laughs> you know, I you know anything that's ever been built or designed was drawn first. Any of my paintings are drawn first. Any of my sculptures or textiles start as a drawing. And I also make just straight up drawings myself too. And for me, it's kind of like the origin, the foundation. It's the one thing that I always go back to is drawing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting thinking about your drawings and which I'm assuming are in black and white. No, I actually use or, pastels. A lot of people you use pastels, okay. Things, but they're actually drawings. Okay, yeah, because I was going to say like color is such a big part of your work. I mean, when I think of your work, I think of the colors and the vibrancy and the richness of your color palette. Can you also speak a little bit on that and what led you to your current color palette? Yeah, I mean, I think I've always liked color in general. I've taken like five different color theory classes because I wanted to understand my own, you know, you know, why I was drawn to color so much. Um, I'm also a big fan of David Batchelor's Chromophobia, which is a kind of modern contemporary take on color theory. Um, and it speaks on why, or not why, but the fact that Western culture is in a way afraid of color um, and why we shouldn't be. <laughs> and so I try to not be afraid of color. I try to use color to my advantage. Um, and uh, yeah, sometimes that it looks like a monochromatic painting with a few splashes of a contrasting color in there. Or sometimes that is a painting that is fully chromatic with a color palette that I find harmonious. But I feel like my use of color is very honest. You know, if I paint grass, it's going to be green. If I paint water, it's going to be blue. If I paint clouds, they're going to be white. Like I, I use color in a very honest way. I don't try to be 
too um, academic with it, I guess. And I feel like that has kind of developed a visual vocabulary that in itself is is very honest and um, and you know it has allowed me to experiment with light and light sources and um, and light being different colors. Um, so yeah, overall in my work, I champion color and I also champion composition. I feel like those are the two things that I think the most about when I'm making my work. Um, and that all goes back to my education at SAAC and the things that excited me most while I was learning. Yeah, it's beautiful. And I love also just circling back because I think it's all connected to what you said earlier about how you know, you view, view your work as sort of a vehicle to tell stories and, you know, using the archetypes. Because I really feel that when I've spent time on your website or on your Instagram, I really do feel this beautiful narrative quality that comes through. And it's almost like looking through a picture book where there are no words and you kind of have to like interpret or understand what the work is about. Like you want to know, but you just see the figures interacting in this really beautiful way. And yeah, it's, do you feel like that part, that part of your work, the narrative part, I suppose, has also evolved over the past few years? Yeah, I I would definitely say so. Um, I feel like before I was making stories that were very relevant to just me um, and my experience. But recently I've been, doing a little bit more research into um, stories of people like me, stories of people like queer people in Latin America, queer people here in Chicago, queer Latinos here in Chicago or in the United States in general. Um, And also I've been taking a lot of literary strategies from, um, you know, some of my favorite authors um, that I feel like have, you know, elevated my narratives into something that's a little bit more in the, you know, general cultural realm rather than, you know, just my experience. Yeah. It's so powerful. Um, you know, I mentioned to you before we even started recording this episode that when we were selecting and, you know, when we were looking on your website to choose an image for the cover of the magazine and it was just the hardest decision was even selecting which piece because they're all so powerful and they feel very personal, but they also feel very universal at the same time. And I think that's part of the magic of your work. Like you can kind of see yourself in the work, but also it feels, I think also connecting back to magical realism as well. Like I can see that being such a big influence yeah. um, on your work. Is that a is that a movement that you connected with early on? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I didn't, you know, when I was a, when I was a child, you know, in living in Colombia, I wasn't able to read magical realism because it was at a reading level that was too advanced for me at the time. Um, and then I moved to the United States and actually when I moved to the United States, I learned English through reading books. Um, I, you know, I would read really small children's picture books, like at a first grade reading level, even though I was a fourth grader. Um, And I would, you know, slowly work my way up. You know, I went from Dr. Seuss to like the Magic Treehouse books and then up and up. 
And so um, reading was a really big part of my um, education and, you know, the way that I learned English. But now as an adult, when I, you know, I speak both languages and I'm going back and reading those books, I am just feeling so inspired, um, specifically like Gabriel Garcia Marquez, you know, magical realism being in the sense that, you know, it's a real story set in a real place uh, with small aspects of um, like supernatural occurrences. But also something that's very interesting about magical realism to me is that these stories often um, play with your sense of time. Um, like you'll be in this part of the story in one sentence and then in the next, you'll be 10 years before. Um, and then the paragraph after you're back where you began. And so I feel like that is something that I have started playing around with my work as well, you know, playing with, for example, cultural attire that people used to wear in Colombia back when my parents were my age in Colombia versus what I wear now here in Chicago, putting those in the same painting um, and, and kind of experimenting with time that way um, is something that has been really inspiring to me. It's amazing. And I'm learning too, because I didn't know that about your work. I mean, I knew that it was sort of rooted in, in magical realism, but I think it, it's all kind of, I'm understanding it now on a deeper level and um, hearing about how, you know, reading these stories that, like you said, are grounded in reality, but then also have these magical um, occurrences. It's, there's definitely a strong connection to your work. A question that I had for you, because you have had a lot of success <laughs> in your art career. I feel like every time I you know, see you pop up on Instagram. There's like a new show or something really cool and exciting that's happening and you're creating so much work. And I wanted to ask you like in your path becoming um, a full-time artist, how did it start in terms of, did you, when you were a student at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, how did you initially start getting traction, getting shows? Were you applying? Like, how did the process start for you? I do feel like it's kind of a network. And once you start to, you know, it, very hap it happens very often where once you get one show, you might connect with a curator and then that relationship can lead to something else. But how has that been for you? Yeah, I mean, I would say that, you know, so going to a big fancy art school definitely helps, but it's not the, it's not, a I would not say it's a requirement for like being a successful artist. Um, I had two strategies coming out of art school um, because also art school doesn't really teach you how to be a practicing artist. You know, they teach you about art and how to make art, but they don't teach you how to move through the art world as an emerging artist. And so that's something that I kind of have to figure out on my own. And my two strategies that I used um, when I was emerging um, it were, number one, applying to things. I did apply to a lot of things. Um, here in Chicago, which I feel very lucky to have gotten my start here in Chicago because we have a lot of resources. Um, but there's a Chicago Artist Coalition where they post, they have a resources tab and they post residencies, open calls, um, grants, stuff like that. So I would basically find anything that didn't have an expensive application fee um, and I would apply to it. 
I got my first ever exhibition through applying to to um, a gallery through there. Um, I've also in the past just Googled like artist open calls or residency open calls or whatever. There's there's a lot of really nice compiled lists out there that you can find great opportunities in. Um, and so that is kind of how I got my start in the, um, you know, meeting one collector, getting familiar with a gallery, then meeting another collector, getting familiar with another gallery. Um, and my second strategy that I used that I feel like was also very successful at the time, this was back in 2020, um, was Instagram. So I did post my work on Instagram very consistently. Um, and I also posted it in a way that was presented very professionally, you know, like, uh, like I used Instagram as my own gallery. Um, you know, I would edit the backgrounds of my, you know, of the painting so that it would be nice and even, and I would, you know, basically just perform as my own gallery. Um, and I did so in a way, in, in a way where I took myself very seriously, you know, you kind of kind of like how people say like you have to fake it till you make it you know like i was really like i'm a professional artist i'm posting professional photos of my work you know even though they were all taken with my iphone but you can still work wonders with your iphone and so yeah just taking those photos posting them very consistently very professionally you know adding a tag or a caption to all of them um, I also did back then and still do use a lot of hashtags, hashtag art, hashtag queer art, hashtag Chicago artist, hashtag Chicago gallery. Um, and so you start popping up on people's radars um, and eventually people just started reaching out to me through Instagram, um, kind of like you. Um, and then people just DM me and they're like, hey, what's your email? I would like to connect. Let's do a studio visit. Um, let's do an interview. Let's do whatever. Um, so those are the two strategies, applying to things and taking yourself seriously and, you know, in an online presence context. Absolutely. Those are great strategies. And I will say like, yeah, cause we connected over Instagram. When I found your page, that was the first thing I noticed was how professional you presented your work, like the captions and the photography as well. Everything, it, you really elevated the presentation of your work. It felt like I was on a gallery page and it made me want to reach out and and work with you. And, you know, we did an Instagram live. You were the cover artist for our magazine. And um, because I think what it does is it shows you take pride in your work. And when you see an artist that's taking themselves and their work really seriously, and they're taking the time, like you can tell if when I'm on your Instagram page that you really take the time to curate it with such intention and thoughtfulness. Um, and I think that goes a long way. It's very attractive. Like people want to work with you. It's like, it kind of reminds me of, this is like a, such a silly <laughs> uh, analogy, but you know, it's like when you're dating, right? If you like ham yourself up and you're like, yeah, I've got this. Other people find it attractive. Yeah, too. absolutely. <laughs> but it, but it translates into all parts of your life. Like when you take your work seriously and you elevate the presentation and, and you put it out there in such a way where people can notice and, and understand that, uh, that you see the value in your work. Other people see the value in your work as well. 
Yeah. So you've and done an amazing job with that. that. When I started, you know, really elevating my Instagram presence, I was making work out of my bedroom. I was only making drawings that were like, you know, like a printer paper size. I, w- I didn't have the fancy studio that I have now. And, and so, you know, I feel like it's a good way to start, you know. And, you know, you don't even have to pay fancy Photoshop. Like, there's nice free online tools you can use, which is what I used to use back then, to edit my photos and, and be able to present my, my work in a way that was very appealing. Totally. And I love this, too, because I always say, like, anyone who's listening that's listened to a lot of our podcast episodes is probably going to think I sound like a broken record. But to your point, it's not about what you have. It's doing what you can with what you have. So even if you're working out of your bedroom and you're working on printer size paper and you have your iPhone, you don't have like a super fancy camera. I also don't think you even, I, I think iPhone photos are like pretty good. Um, that's how I photograph all of my work and, you know, stuff for the gallery as well. Um, but it's like maximizing what you do have, uh, the resources that you have available to you and really capitalizing on those. So you're like, okay, well, I have Instagram and I'm going to treat this as my own gallery and I can use these very simple tools to get good photographs and edit my work and, and show up with this level of professionalism. And I do think that when you match, you know, the gal, the level of the galleries that you're trying to attract when you kind of match them in terms of your presentation, your professionalism, and also I will say like energetically as well, then that's when it kind of starts to happen. Like when you elevate yourself, you start to attract everything that's on that frequency too. (laughs) Not to get too, you know, woo-woo, but (laughs) But that's how it goes. Yeah, that is how it goes for sure. I also just, I know we're like coming to the end of our conversation, but I wanted to ask you, what advice would you give? Because as, as you know, so many of our listeners are emerging to early career artists. Um, what advice would you give to an artist who is just starting out and, you know, they, they see you and they really want to become a full-time artist one day? Like what advice would you give to them? Yeah. I mean, uh, I don't want to sound like corny, but you know, like, (laughs) believe in yourself like as as a person you have a lot more power than you maybe think you do um and so believing in yourself and like i like we were just talking about taking yourself seriously like this is what i want to do this is what i'm working towards setting goals for myself um setting achievable goals like even just starting an art account or you know posting my first drawing if if you know um, and then I feel like a lot of us artists are really self-critical of our own work. Like we'll make something and we won't want to show anyone. Stop doing that. Just show it, you know, put it out there. Let people see it. People are going to love it. Um, stop uh, being so self-critical of your own work because if you if you didn't like the work that you made, you wouldn't be making it. <laughs> and so let go of those insecurities and um believe in yourself that's that's what i've always told myself you know throughout my journey i love that and it's like it's it's simple but such powerful advice that we need to remember so i appreciate the reminder because i always share like you can have the practical 
tools and strategies for how to, you know, of course there's a practical side to this where it's like, yeah, you want to make sure your submission materials are in good shape and you want to make your, make sure your website is looking really professional and up to date and all of that. But at the end of the day, like the foundation, the core is that you do have to have, like I always say, an unwavering belief in yourself. Like you have to trust yourself and trust that you're capable and that you can make this happen and that it is possible for you. Because if you don't have that, then those those practical tools and strategies, like they're not going to amount to anything. So I love that you shared that and a powerful reminder to all of us. (laughs) We are all powerful. We are. Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the last things I'll say, because I think this is something you, I would imagine just based on everything you've shared, feel as well, which is that when you take a leap of faith, like deciding to become a full-time artist, or in my case, deciding to launch my company and uh, become a full-time entrepreneur, it does deepen your trust in yourself, I think. And is that something that you have experienced as well? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like I have a much stronger relationship with myself. Um, and, you know, the things that I, I've i accomplished, the things that I wanted to accomplish five years ago. And so the things that I want to accomplish now are even bigger. You know, I feel like it just allows me to dream even bigger. Yeah, always getting to the next level. And um, it's been amazing, truly. I know I keep saying this, but seeing how much you've accomplished over the last four years, just since I've started following you, it's amazing to think about, you know, where you're going to be in four years from now, 2028, like who even knows, <laughs> but I know it's going to be amazing. I'm excited. <laughs> Let's hope so. We're working yeah. towards it. <laughs> Thank you. Absolutely. No, you, you're such an inspiration and um, I'm excited to continue following your journey. And I want to thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. It's been such a pleasure to, to learn more about you and your work. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. It was a really nice conversation and, and I hope we get to connect soon. Yes, we will. We will. Absolutely. Well, thank you again, Juan. And for everyone that's tuned into this episode, thank you so much. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for tuning in and supporting our platform. To learn more about New Visionary Magazine, head over to visionaryartcollective.com slash magazine. You can order individual copies on Amazon or subscribe annually to digital issues. We also have opportunities to get featured in the magazine, so be sure to join our newsletter and follow us on Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to leave a review on iTunes or tag us on Instagram. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.